Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Business Insider. And I'm here with global markets and economics reporter David Scott. Hello, Dave. Fantastic to be here, as always. Thank you, Paul. And our guest this week back on the show is James Whelan, investment manager at uh, VFS Group. James, great to see you. Great to see you too, Colgo. Great to be here. Now, on the agenda this week, um, we're going to run through a few things. Um, I think it's going to be a um, good, fun podcast. It's been a, um, another punishing week in the markets. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about life and debt in China, the world's second largest economy. We're going to look at the Australian employment data. That might put me in a bit of a cranky mood. Um, um, we're going to look at uh, uh, quickly at the Australian banks because um, uh, we've got some uh, reporting coming up from, from the majors over the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to have a quick look at property, uh, particularly apartment prices uh, and some pretty amazing facts about the apartment boom. And uh, we can't have an economics podcast at the moment without talking about avocados. So we will do that too. But let's start with China. So uh, Q3 GDP came in at 6.7%, Dave? That's correct. Um, and I think the way we presented it was on the lines of, you know, for now, it looks like this great long-term slowdown in the rate of China's economic growth um, is seems to be over for now. So um, I think there was um, you had some pretty uh, interesting um, uh, stats on how this was, you know, persistently sort of steady GDP growth and for a, a fairly remarkably long period in Chinese terms. Yeah, I think the uh, the official data goes back to 1992, if my memory serves me correct, and it's the first time on record that we've seen three consecutive quarters where the year-on-year growth rate has been 6.7%. So make of that what you will. I know that um, I was writing my 10-second guide before the, uh, before the data came out, and I just made the observation that in the previous seven GDP releases, the year-on-year uh, the -year figure was exactly in line or 0.1% above what the market consensus was. Now, I'm not sure whether that's something to do with the fact that Chinese policymakers announced their year-on-year uh, -year growth target at the beginning of the year or simply because the markets know that and then they're going to put their, uh, their figures in around that level. But... It's a remarkably consistent uh, figure, that's all I'll say. It's, it's incredible how consistent it actually is on that one. And the, the old expression, well, it's not really an old expression, but there's an expression about Chinese G D GDP and how much you can actually trust it. If, if they want to hit their GDP numbers, they build a bridge, knock it down, build a bridge, knock it down. How are we doing? We're almost there. Okay, we'll build it back up again. Okay, we've hit our GDP. That is in, that's in essence how they hit, how they hit those numbers. Oh, of course, you could also go in and add that uh, the, the figures came out, what, 19 days after the end of the quarter, which is remarkable for an economy of 1.3 billion people and as complex as China, but the, uh, it's, it, it is remarkable how consistent the other uh, figures are. Click on the abacus. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Um, there's another story running in parallel here, uh, which is credit growth uh, in China, right? So the debt-to-GDP ratio is huge. And as you point out, David, it kind of depends on who you ask. The IMF says it's around 225%. It's just astonishing. Others think it's bigger. 
Yes, uh, I was just uh, writing a piece of, from the uh, National Australia Bank. Uh, Jared Berg uh, is their, uh, their Asia economist there. Um, they believe that uh, you include all the shadow banking, which they don't believe is being captured in the IMF figures and the, the Bank of International Settlement figures, is, uh, is closer to 320% of, uh, of GDP. Um, to put that in perspective from, uh, from an Australian perspective, we're sitting just a little bit above 250% when you're adding government and private sector debt. Right. So um, increasingly this year, there's been talk about, um, you know, people need to be earning money to make sure that this debt gets repaid. Now, sure, China's a bit different economy. It's, you know, if you like, it's not um, as open a free market economy um, as advanced nations are around the world, you know, and you've got a lot of debt in these um, uh, state-owned enterprises. Um, so Beijing has a lot of control. There's a lot of levers they can pull um, to try and manage uh, the debt problem and where the debt's sitting. Um, but increasingly, you do have to wonder, is there the potential for some sort of financial crisis um, to develop here? Well, certainly that's the talk of the town for, uh, for a week when they announce their GDP figures, and that would normally dominate discussion. It's not been the actual GDP report that's been the focus of markets. So it's the continued discussion about the debt levels, particularly the rapid growth of, uh, of debt. Uh, there's been some figures being put out from the Bank of International Settlements who have uh, calculated the uh, China's credit to GDP gap. So uh, essentially non-private non sector uh, financial debt, non-financial debt, should I say, um, against its long run trend. And it's uh, currently growing about 30% above what its normal trend would be. So you've got a debt is increasing rapidly, uh, leverage increasing rapidly now. That can't be allowed to go on, obviously. Uh, in the past, and this is not saying that it's going to happen in China, but previously when you've seen other nations that have been running with this, uh, this gap as high as what China is experiencing right now, it's almost inevitably led to some sort of major bust in the financial system. Right. What do you think? Well, I certainly don't think it continues going what it's doing at the moment. Uh, but. This is the tricky uh, decision that policymakers have in China at the moment is to balance between short-term goals and long-term goals. And uh, at the moment, it seems they're certainly favouring the short-term goals. That's perceived to be adding to, uh, to longer-term risk. Um, I think everyone's been surprised by the scale and the veracity of this, uh, this stimulus package that's been put forward this year and how long it's, uh, it's been allowed to run for and its impact on commodity prices that we've seen here in Australia. Yeah, Coke and coal in particular are going absolutely bananas. Yeah, lazy 240% up in less than a year. So uh, not, not a bad uh, little uh, earner for, uh, for the government coffers and miners. But, but also uh, um, uh, this uh, looking at um, iron ore prices in the high 50s. That's correct. So, you know, to put that in perspective, you know, the... the Federal government uh, budget was forecasting a free on board rate of about 55 bucks a ton on average over the course of the year. At the moment, the, uh, the spot rate is currently sitting at about uh, 59 bucks. So give or take, it's roughly about where the government forecasts are right now. Yeah, so um, I have a prediction um, that in the mid-year economic and, uh, uh, and uh, fiscal outlook um, that uh, Scott Morrison will unveil in December that there'll actually be the deficit won't look as bad um, as it was looking back in uh, May, um, and there might be some slight upward revisions, uh, in fact, um, to the um, to the trajectory in, uh, in terms of uh, returning 
started that, that long process of returning the budget to surplus, um, basically because um, China, our biggest trading partner, uh, its economy is not slowing um, down as much as it has been for a long time. Um, and there's been a bit of support for commodity prices in particular, you know, our biggest. Sure, they're not as much of the economy as they used to be, but they are still our biggest exports. So, oh, I, I read during the week the Treasury was going to look past the surge in uh, in, coking, in coal prices, not just coking coal, but also in uh, in thermal coal prices as well. But uh, I don't disagree with you. I think that uh, that could be laying the foundation for a, a pleasant surprise come early December. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, now um, I'm in a good mood because. Uh, I'm going on holiday on Sunday, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but we do need to talk about the um, the Australian jobs data. So I'm going to start slowly and reasonably, okay? So the Bureau, Australian Bureau of Statistics this week reported the Australian economy posting a net loss of, I think, 9,800 jobs? That's right. Um, 53,000 full-time jobs. Yeah, 50... 53,000 full-time jobs disappeared from the, from the, from the economy, economy over the course of September. Yes. Now, and that's on the seasonally adjusted figures, but the trend figures, you know, broad, broadly similar picture. There was a net, net job loss of a few thousand jobs um, in the economy for September, right? Now, there was something really interesting about the results this time. Now, the ABS for a long time has been saying, please don't look too carefully at the seasonally adjusted figures. Please focus on the trend because there have been some issues with the way it, um, it conducts its sampling. Um, um, across um, uh, uh, households for this uh, for the for the jobs data, um, but in this case they actually reduced the influence of a part of the sample, which was based up in Queensland. Now, here's the thing for me: if they're saying, "Well, look, the, let's qualify this data first of all by saying, focus on the trend, don't look at the seasonally adjusted," then when you go into the to you, you do it, you have a month where you say. On top of that, we've actually tweaked this because the sample's a bit off. Now, statisticians have to get their samples right. Yes. Good statisticians put an enormous amount of store in representative sampling. So talk about Queensland. Did they say that the Queensland, the Queensland what, would, what was coming out of Queensland, we would sort of tone that down or sort of scale it backwards? Because so here's the thing, we don't know. <laughs> so, so I asked them. Go on. I asked the ABS, would you please tell us what would the impact be, or what would the result have been if you didn't tweak it, and they would not say. So we don't know if that would have resulted in a slightly better result or a slightly worse result. Yep. Right now, so for me, here's the thing: you're getting all these qualifiers on the data. What if next month there's another bad number, but there's still qualifiers on the data, and the following month after that? When do you start to, to go, there is, you know, the economy's actually losing jobs? Because, you know, there's, the, there's a proper pattern emerging of, 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 um, of jobs being lost in the economy. I, no, go, go on, Paul, because you, you, you're building up to something incredible here and I'm not going to get in the way of you. Well, no, look, it just makes me wonder why they bother. There you go. Um, there's been a lot of, a lot of questioning from, from our side, from the, from the front-end side of things about... How credible is this data um, with regards to the sample sizes? Has it been reduced and reduced and reduced on uh, in response to the budget cuts and, and just how uh, that, that ABS is underfunded, as we've seen? It, it, what's one notable thing that you can think of that was from potentially from underfunding of the ABS recently? 
um, that, 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 that springs to mind. But just over the last few years, we've seen the sample sizes have been coming down as very strange data has come out. And then the first place that you go to is just how many people are they asking? How many people are they calling? And you've realised that that number has been coming down and down more and more. Now, this is very interesting, and I've got a lot of respect for you, Paul, for calling this out yesterday. Um, and it's really started to, to, to hit front of mind for anyone who wasn't thinking about it before. Can we trust this data? Um, the, the other alternative is, can we trust Chinese data? We know that we can't trust Chinese data, and yet we still do. Every single time mm. a Chinese figure comes out, we all say, well, it's manufactured, but we've got to listen to it anyway. The number's because, a number. Because yeah. the number's a number. What else have you got? Devil's advocate here, because mm. I know that you're looking for a fight. Mm. And, you know, if I'm someone who's going to pick a fight with an Irishman... It's my, my, point on, <laughs> my point on the, on the data was just, this, has to, this can't go on um, the, 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 with the jobs data. There needs to be some change to, to, to how they're doing. They need to beef up their methodology, allocate some more resources to it. Um, I think I said in my column uh, during the week on this that, you know, adding in this qualifier almost sounds like a cry for help from the ABS. <laughs> you know? I think there's only so many ways that public servants can actually, can actually go and say that they're in strife and they're actually in trouble without, without them just getting... You know, immediately dismissed on this, and, that, and you're right. It could be it could be them coming out and saying, "Someone pay attention to us because we're in some trouble here." Yeah. And what are we basing? What are we basing this data? What What is this data? Just for people who you know who are listening, what what are the what are the ramifications of this data? What what? Oh, and, of course. Okay. Yeah. So so what 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 goes on? Right. So so here's the thing. If it, my um, take on this is, if you were to have a number a, a result like that, um, and where you could be where, where you thought that there was a lot of credibility behind the data, if you had that number, that result repeated yesterday where the economy is shedding jobs clearly on a month-by-month -month basis, if that was to continue over several months, you would be looking at the Australian economic story being radically different. So you would have an impact on the federal budget bottom line because your welfare uh, bill would be increasing, yes. more people um, move out of employment, um, you have all the social costs, you have people with mortgages who <laughs> need to repay them, um, and all of a sudden, you know, d a spike in unemployment or losses in jobs are a very bad sign. Spot Particularly as it's a lag indicator. It's not, it's not a leading indicator, it's a lag indicator, so it's telling you where the labour market has been months before rather than where it is right now. And um, the key thing, look, the, the seasonally adjusted figures, in my opinion, are rubbish from my time before when I was, uh, when I was trading and investing uh, in, uh, in several banks. Uh, there was always a mistrust of the data. We used to go and particularly fade the move. Whatever uh, the, the markets would go and do off the back of the data would often go and fade that move because, quite frankly, no one trusted the figures and you'd tend to go and revert to, uh, to where it was trading at before. And that was the, the mindset that we had. It didn't happen yesterday, but there's a lot of times where it actually does. People don't trust the figures. But the key thing as well is that even excluding all the, uh, the wild swings and the seasonally adjusted figures, there's clear signs of a loss of momentum in the, uh, in the labour market building now. You've got uh, labour market underutilisation at very high levels, higher than what they were at, uh, during the, uh, the GSC. So that's unemployed people and also underemployed people. Underemployment, which is released quarterly, which is really not helpful as well. It's at uh, the highest level on record as well. You've got a huge increase in part-time workers, uh, for the first time in, uh, in several years, we've got full-time employment, which is falling now. Uh, even excluding the actual data and the validity of the data, 
there's clear signs that there's something not quite right in the eye of the labour market. So there's two things that I always I think are important to note here too. There's a broader context in terms of you know your demographics, destiny. We've got an ageing population on one hand, and on the other hand, the nature of work is changing a little bit, right? True. So, um, so some economists, economists will say that look, um, companies are trying to firms are trying to be smarter about how they. Um, apply resources to their labour. So instead of creating full-time jobs, they maybe create two part-times or, or you know, um, two sort of ten-hour-a-week positions, whatever, rather than creating a full-time job. Now, um, you put those two things together, and you are going to have a bit of a weakening. You're going to get a falling participation rate um, potentially because of the ageing population, mm. people uh, getting towards the more people getting towards the end of the career where they're saying. Um, they're into their working life where they're saying, look, I, I genuinely don't want to work full-time anymore or whatever. And that's great, you know, good for them. That's so, the point. Yeah, So, and I think that's a very important bit of context to have around what's happening in the labour market. Mm. But at the same time, to your point, Dave, um, you know, there, there are patterns here emerging which are not necessarily ideal, right? Oh, exactly right. You know, policymakers can't trust the data. The, the longer this is allowed to persist, this, this survey, the seasonally adjusted figures, the ABS can push you towards a trend series as much as they'd like. But as long as this seasonally adjusted figure is the one that the markets are focused on, and that's what is still the case, uh, the chance of a, a misstep, a miscalculation in policy, whether it's monetary policy or, or fiscal policy forecasts, is increasing. Uh, I think what the, the serious question needs to be raised now if the ABS won't be provided the funding or if they can't fix it, then it's time to go and look for another source uh, of information to go and provide what's going on with the labour market. Uh, everyone who uh, follows the, uh, the US financial markets and the, uh, the US jobs report in particular knows that there's two surveys. There's the payroll survey and there's also the household survey. The household survey, a little bit like ours here in Australia, is very wild, but the payrolls gives you a real firm indication as how many people are obtaining employment or losing employment in a month. Now, I'm not sure exactly how the mechanics could go, but the ATO, most people who go and get a job have got a, a tax file number. You'd go and get an increase, uh, you'd see that come through to the ATO. Maybe, maybe it's time for the, uh, for the tax office to be given some responsibility to go and come up with a new survey so you can actually get a, a real grasp of what's going on. It's not a bad idea, actually. That's very good. Well, it do, they, they, do it, they do it in, uh, in other countries around the world, so there's no reason why they can't do it here. But at the moment, look, I feel for a lot of the people at the ABS because I know it's not absolutely. It's, it's, it, it's not. Yeah. It's not their problem. It's the fact that they've had so much of their budget cut continuously, uh, and at some point there needs to be a discussion. Well, at the moment we're not getting any real outcome that is meaningful to the markets, to investors, to businesses, to households. So there's time for a, a change and a discussion about how how potentially we can go and do that. Yep. No, that's good. Very good. Oh, just going through, Paul. Uh, not to not to hang on it too long, but the. The, the, the real follow through and the real fallout that it keeps on going if you want to be you know chicken little on on how much the sky is falling on this if this data does keep on going whether it's good or bad or whatever it's telling you but if we've got continual bad data uh, look at how indebted we are you, you mentioned before about jobs people losing jobs very personal uh, high personal debt high mortgage debt our banks obviously tailored to that if you're looking for a reason to start getting away from the banks it's going to be off data that's sort of like this as well too um, and we'll talk about this a bit later. But if you, you mean want to talk in terms about, of um, uh, holding shares, it's holding good. shares in these things, and then it affects the super, it affects people's super fund balances, and then it affects their retirement savings. It affects, you know, it it, it does have a long trickle through uh, more than just whether or not the RBA or, or what's on the bottom line of the budget. You know, there's it, it, there's a lot more that's on it um, for a, an actual at a personal level for people as well. 
Um, so anyway, but the, I, I was just thinking about just I hate bad data, and I hate that we know that it's bad data, yeah. and I hate that we know, and we're looking at it, and we're talking about this, and we know costly data, and, and data that takes time to go and produce, which no one gives two hoots about it. That's yeah. that's the honest truth. Yeah. You are listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Let's try and lift the tone a little bit. Um, uh, okay, so banks. Um, we're gonna, uh, the banks are going to uh, be reporting over the next couple of weeks. Um, so we'll get some update on er- earnings from them. Um, Deutsche Bank's research team says they're expecting a relatively subdued set of results. Um, we're, they're looking for small declines in cash earnings for ANZ and NAB, uh, the margin of uh, the level of 1% to 2%, little kick up for Westpac. Um, they do say that one thing to look out for is funding cost pressures mm. um, and a little bit of extra provisions for bad loans, which has been something that's starting to happen over the last uh, six months or so. Um, now, James, you have a view on this. Um, in the last month or two, there's been a bit of a shift in how the world is thinking about interest rates, right? So this speaks to the um, funding costs pressures. Yep. Um, the, everybody's sort of thinking about, you know, finally the Fed. I feel like we say this so often on this uh, on this podcast. We've been, call, we've been calling the Fed rise for the last well six months or so, uh, maybe going on a year. This could be the anniversary of us of us doing this, but yeah, it, it's. Um, but you almost say that December is a lock, right? I'm I'm going 100 percent on December. Yeah. Right now it's about 60 high 60 percent um, according to what the futures are factoring in on a December rate rise from the Fed. Right. So. I believe that they will be jawbonering this up to about an 80% right. um, by December. So th- this is this is so that you avoid the Rosengren factor, which I'm calling it, be- beginning in December when uh, the head of the Boston, I believe, is the Boston Bank. Uh, you know, he, he said we're going to raise the rates regardless of, of of how good the data is or, or anything else like that. The market really sold off uh, pretty badly that night. That was a warning of what happens if you go and say stuff without. <laughs> You know, without properly mentioning it to the market, this is being overcommunicated, overcommunicated. Overcommunication is great. The Fed love doing this, and they're doing this. So, so they'll be pushing this up to about an eighty percent chance of of December. I am already one hundred percent. It's going to happen. So, playing field. Look at what we've got in Australia. We've got, like I said, a lot of personal debt, uh, a lot of mortgage debt, um, uh, and our banks very leveraged to that here as well. Um, now, keep in mind also the overarching theme of what I'm talking about is that a bank's lifeblood is its is its NIM, its net interest margin, which you know everyone everyone knows nothing wrong with uh, with that. But a higher rate environment is obviously better for banks because they can charge more, they get a bigger NIM. That it, it sort of stretches out in that way. When it's coming down towards zero, it's very difficult for them to slap um, a margin on and, and, and make money. So you've got Australian banks which have done well through the last eight years of of uh, GFC. Um, the tail end of which we're still experiencing now, and and our banks have done well. However, because they've done well, they've pretty much stayed the same as they've always been. There's been no real significant changes from the banks that we've seen. Um, uh, a little bit extra compliance, uh, you know, uh, uh, tweaks here and there, provisioning for a few more bad debts. The, the the commodities boom is over, the mining boom is over, but there hasn't really been any actual impact to the banks specifically. Although we know how bad real estate is outside, and we'll talk about this in a second, mm-hmm. outside the big three cities. Yeah. In the US, however, now this is US banks is where my focus is at the moment, um, I'm actually quite bullish on, on US retail banks, apart from Wells Fargo for obvious reasons, which we don't need to go into here. Uh, but they've, they've gone through a real crisis over in the US that, that they've seen. 
um, personal spending is is down, personal debt is down, mortgage debt is down, um, and and the banks have have had their had their nims had their margins squeezed down to to well as close to zero as possible in a, in a in a zero almost a zero rate environment there. So what banks have done is the thing that companies do when they're when they're faced with lowering margins in real trouble times is that they've actually slimmed themselves down. They've they've you, you get rid of the fat, you get rid of that middle management layer, you get rid of that over management a whole bunch of people that you don't really need to be there, uh, and also at the same time, because there's been so much focus on them, that they've had compliance has, has gone through the roof, and, and they've, they've passed tests on capitalisation, so they are well-capitalised banks, they are overly regulated, they've got so many sets of eyes on them that it's not, it's, it's not funny, and, and Wells Fargo showed what happens when the regulator comes in and says, you're done wrong, um, and, and we're going to get you, and they've got them. So... They are. It is proven that the regulatory system works for as much as you want it to work over there, and it's proven that the banks are actually are actually regulated well. They're capitalised well, like I said, and they're slim. Now, this is the important thing. So, in a rising rate environment, who wins and who loses? The U.S. banks win. The Australian banks lose in this in this environment because the U.S. banks win because as rates go up, the, 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 you know, the cost of funds can go up, but it also means that they can stretch things out and it also uh, stretch out their, their, their NIMS, stretch out their, their intake that they can have um, in my ham-fisted way of explaining it. I'm sorry, I'm not Julia Lee. The, uh, um, the, it's a general apology that I, that I say when I walk into any room. So, <laughs> so, the, the, uh, the, uh, so, so they can stretch that out. Also, because they've got a big buffer in the U.S. of a lot of upside potential in the U.S. They've got you know largest economy in the world. Um, and a lot of upside, but their, their personal debt, mortgage debt that, 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 that they have is actually quite low, and a lot of upside that they've got for people to actually borrow, and companies as well, mm. a lot of upside that they've got to actually borrow and, uh, and, and, make, and make their world a better place. What about, though, um, this uh, view that um, since the Great Recession um, that followed the, the global financial crisis, um, there's been this incredibly long now expansion in the U.S. economy. I think um, something like 70 plus months of continuous job creation. Mm -hmm. um, it's I think the longest um, the the longest expansion since the 20s. Yeah, it's um, either, I think it's either the second or the third longest. So it might be the second now. It's been going for quite a while. I'll yeah. accept either. Yep. So what about this? You know, in in terms of that. You know, being bullish on, on 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 U.S. banks, what about the risk of basically a recession? There is expansion underway. That that, well, okay. Is there a risk of recession? The reason people talk about it is be just because there is a natural cycle to how the U.S. economy works, and lifting those rates might force a couple of issues. It, it may force a couple of issues, but they are raising the rates with on the back of what it is that you just said about how the data is actually quite strong, and regardless of what Donald Trump says, they are doing quite well in America. Um, I, I, I'm still standing very much by, look, there could be a recession, that's fine. Um, if there was a recession on the horizon, then they shouldn't be raising rates in that environment. Yeah, sure. um, I, I, and I'm still putting, from an investment theme, this is, uh, that I, I, I'm still pushing the fact that retail banks with regards to personal debt and personal spending, um, have got a, a, a lot more intake to, to come. The cost of funds uh, will rise a touch, but it also means that they can, they can make more of a margin on the top there as well. Conversely, in, the, in, in Australia, if we are going through, if we're at the bottom of our rate cycle as well, which you can go through how globally, if we are, we are, 
um, if the US starts to rise, then we don't need to lower ours anymore, so therefore we're at the bottom because our dollar will be, uh, uh, will be sold with regard, uh, relative to the US dollar. Um, that that uh, it's actually not, not great for us. We've got, what was the mortgage, uh, the, the mortgage data that was out at the beginning of the week? I'm trying to think, anyone who saw it, I'm looking at someone to, to, to help me out of here. But we've got a very large mortgage debt and we're behind on our, uh, we're behind on our mortgage payments as well. Oh, you're referring to the... the, uh, the, the there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, so, yeah there's a the few, the few states, uh, I think, uh, or maybe cities like Perth, uh, or, oh, sorry, I think it's states, uh, WA, Northern Territory, and, uh, and one of the others as well was, uh, I think there were record record levels of, uh, of loans that were in arrears and right. just, just, just early, early warning signs that, uh, that there's a bit of problems with the asset, yeah. asset quality of some areas. Nationwide, I think it's the highest level in three years. Um, so you can imagine, you know, with the strength of the economies in, uh, in New South Wales and Victoria particularly, um, that to get to that level, you've got to have some pretty um, uh, grim situations emerging in the, in the, in the mining states. Yes. Um, so, so, so going through, so we got the highest consumer debt in the world. Uh, if if our rates rise, you know, we're already behind on our mortgage. We as a people, as as you know, everyone who's not me, and my seven figures that I owe to the Commonwealth Bank that I announced last time <laughs> I was on a podcast, which is great. Uh, and th- that uh, everyone's very impressed by that too. It's not it's not something to be proud of. The the uh, that 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 we don't have a lot of wiggle room with regards to being able to borrow more. Uh, we definitely can't get any more behind on our on our mortgage debt. And the banks are so incredibly leveraged to this uh, that, that it's not a good time for our local banks. Also, our local banks haven't really got rid of as many people, relatively uh, speaking, compared to the US, as, as, as they have. So you've got these very fat, overweight banks that are still carrying all these things uh, around with them that are lever- really badly, negatively leveraged to uh, increased you know, an increased rates environment. So if you are going to look at a place to, to, to put money, the US banks, because also they have been so unloved for such a long time that the US banks, uh, and they're so underheld... Some value there. there is th- that there is value there. And also for the Australian investor, if you're looking at the double-barrel uh, double approach on this one, is that if you are investing in the US, then you get the exposure to the US dollar as well, if you, if you, if you do it that way. So with all other things being equal... If the Fed rises, which they will, that you know, he says that. Uh, we've said it before. If the if the if the Fed does rise, then the U.S. dollar will, in theory, rise off the back of that. So all things being equal, your investment will will rise in value on there too. Let's look quickly at um, uh, at something that's very important to the Australian banks. You touched on it uh, a little bit, but uh, property, right? So everybody's been talking about this apartment boom. Long line of analysts uh, warning that prices are about to fall in 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 uh, for apartments in the major cities. Um, David, you found a completely mind blowing stat on this during the week. Yeah, something that uh, I, I'll even know. In- Sort of uh, in a in a southern Sydney, so I'm uh, well uh, well used to seeing uh, anecdotal evidence. All I have to do is go and look out my window, and all I can see is a whole lot of cranes in the skies. But uh, there was some research that was uh, released from UBS, uh, and they were citing a, a data report from RLB, which monitors numbers of cranes are in operation. Uh, and in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, there were 454 cranes that were currently in use in the sorry that were in use in the uh, the September quarter building high-rise apartments, quite a large number, a, a massive number anyway. 
Uh, and in comparison, when they, when they looked at a whole lot of different cities across the US, including uh, New York, uh, you had uh, places in uh, Canada, major centers, and they had less cranes in operations, uh, 419 that were actually being used to go and build residential apartments. So three modestly sized cities in the global uh, scheme of things were gazumping these huge cities over in North America. You know, there is a crane on my street um, building um, high-rise apartments in, you know, Petersham in the inner west of Sydney. You know, we're a few k's outside of the city centre. Mm. Um, and there are, you know, there's one on my street and then a couple of blocks down. Um, there's another couple, um, you know, uh, basically there is a lot of, uh, of this high-rise apartment um, uh, activity going on in places that you wouldn't necessarily suspect would be the first first uh, port of call for uh, for high density uh, for high density housing. Oh, potentially. It's uh, it's, it's funny today when I was walking out of home and I was uh, going down a Green Square railway station. I um I happened to go and just get this picture where I was like uh, going through two buildings and right in front of me there was a new crane. This crane only went up <laughs> only went up last week. And uh, the company's name on this crane was called Golden Age. And I was just thinking to myself, I couldn't think of a more cliched term to describe what's going on in the moment uh, in the residential construction sector than the Golden Age. No, what what comes after the Golden Age? How long can can this possibly go on? Uh, And how many people are actually uh, buying these things? Well, haven't we passed the peak in approvals now? Uh... Give or take, it's, uh, it's still very elevated levels, so it's still indicating that the uh, supply to come, if those uh, approvals get turned to actual starts, is still a lot of supply. Uh, you're right, but uh, there's, there's so many uh, no different people out there warning now. Uh, people who are considering buying an apartment right now, just remember that it is a market. There is demand and supply. Uh, and in most markets, when you go and see uh, you know, demand stay steady and you see supply go and stand, uh, start ramping up, uh, the natural response is to see prices fall. So if people are like, you no know, shock horror that there's going to be a, a fall in, uh, in, in high-density uh, apartments, uh, well, that's what a market is. So that's the warning that people need to go and consider. Uh, how big that, that fall is going to be, no one particularly knows. That's right. Now, one thing that's very important if you are... So apartments are typically um, a really good way for people to get into the housing and property market for the first time. Um, and there has been a big debate um, sparked by um, the second last paragraph of a column by Bernard Salt in The Australian last weekend, where he <laughs> said he grumbled um, that, you know, people about young people complaining about not being able to get into the property market. But then he sees hipsters buying twenty two dollar smashed avocado brunches for themselves. And he kind of pointed out that, you know, um, if you didn't do that, well, maybe you could buy a house. Now, this got completely out of control. Um, the I gar- do love a blow-up, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the Guardian built an interactive where you could look at how many $22 brunches uh, it would cost you to get into the housing market in major metropolitan centres across Australia. Um, just wild. Uh, Uber Eats is delivering free smashed avocado to people um, uh, around, um, you know, it's just this massive guy. ME Bank launched a new product or did some marketing around, you know, you can have your smashed avocado and a mortgage too kind of thing. Um, look, just way out of hand. My take on this is, look, very simple. I, I really am surprised at the number of people who think Bernard Salt was actually saying that if you ate less $22 brunches you could afford a house it, he was making a point about choices discretionary um, spending and he did, you know yeah. about discipline and choices and just the facts of life yes right people um, don't see that yeah uh, 
property is expensive. Sure. It's expensive. Yes. If you want to afford it, you've got to, you know, you've got to make some choices about your budget. Anyway, James, you have a big um, bit of gloating, a well-earned bit of gloating on this. We you? broke. I'm, I'm trying to think about where the date was that we actually went back on this, on this one. It, was, it may have been the first or second podcast that we did here. We were talking about um, the CPI had come out, and I was oh, yes, talking about the basket. And I, and I was asking, because I know that you're the basket king on what the basket of on the basket of goods as david a, as opposed to the basket case <laughs> china's the basket case you're the basket king the the uh that that what is in the basket of goods with the cpi data it comes out and they don't tell us i remember you you saying that they don't actually say what's in that basket of goods and i said if you want to get if you want to get inflation up make sure avocados are in that basket now that was now when was that that was about six months ago i think it was that, that, that we teed that off um, and there was a bit of laughter about that there too. Just just how expensive avocados actually are. One of my he's a, a very good client of mine. He's uh, he's in the avocado business, and I asked him why are avocados expensive? Avocados are expensive because they're expensive. Right. There you go. And I, I, we're in farming and agriculture ourselves. And many years ago, when lamb remember when lamb was going through the roof, and and I asked some of the the, the people that were around the farms that we've got in Victoria, why why is lamb so expensive at the shops? It's expensive because that's what people will pay for it. Now, in avocados, there was a slight shortage, a supply and demand issue there, but sometimes you just charge something that you know someone is going to eat because people will buy it, and people are generally, I've, I've noticed over my time on this earth, a little bit, um, well, you know, when it comes to buying and uh, things that, that, are, that are overpriced, probably a little bit silly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and that's toning my words very, very, very <laughs> down. So the, 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 the we've got... I don't care how expensive property is. If you're spending $22 on a smashed avocado or some whole grain, then there is something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, well, this is the thing. Simon Thompson actually wanted to know, where is this mystery cafe that sells smashed avocado? With the $22 smashed avocado, yeah. I'll tell you what, if, you, if, you were only, if you're only charging $16 before, then that price suddenly goes through the roof because you know that you can charge that. Look... I, I am speechless about the price of food and what people are getting away charging nowadays for things. But, look, this is, this is a, a corporate world. This is capitalism at its best. Yeah. If you can afford a $22 smashed avocado, then so be it. Yeah. I, I owe the Commonwealth Bank seven figures, and I, you know, I'll probably skip, skip the occasional avocado breakfast. Yeah. I think we're getting away from the, the, where the, the actual true discussion is, though. Uh, if you go and measure the housing affordability, I know a lot of people particularly those in the, uh, the housing industry, roll out uh, you know, the, the, the cost of, uh, of servicing your mortgage as a, as a gauge as to, uh, to housing affordability. And it's true that whilst it's not at the lowest level on, on record, it's certainly not at the highest level. We've got interest rates at record low levels. So that's kind of counteracted this huge increase in debt that we've seen. So it's, it's around about, no, it's elevated, but it's not extremely high. But it's the barriers to entry into the housing market, which yeah. is, is the problem. Uh, we're, we're based here in Sydney, so we're obviously a little bit Sydney-orientated. If you go and look at uh, the cost of what it's uh, the price for a, a median house uh, based on the CoreLogic data in the past year has gone up, uh, I think, 13%. So give or take, you're talking about roughly $100,000 extra in one year. Uh, so for a first home buyer, uh, saving for a housing deposit and looking to pay lenders mortgage insurance, they're, they're going to have to go and at least save an additional 20 grand just to go and keep that deposit level in, the, in check. That is where it's unrealistic. That's where housing affordability is really, truly not being measured correctly. It's, the barriers to entry are so high now that uh, you, you, 
all these other metrics they go and roll out are meaningless because people cannot afford to go and actually buy in the first place. But so, so it's buying in the place that they want in the first place. So, you know, you can in Sydney, you might have a big commute, but you can buy houses for 300, 400 grand. Oh, I reckon, I reckon, I reckon, I reckon you'll be struggling now. But, uh, I, I know what you're referring to is like going up to Timbuktu or something, uh, <laughs> and traveling, uh, traveling for about three hours each way to go to work. That's what they, well, that's, do it. That, that, that's correct. And like, good, good on those people who want the, uh, the home ownership dream and everything else. But a lot of people are making the choice and saying, well, the cost of entry to go and live in an area where it's going to be for a lifestyle and where it's, uh, it's going to not take you know, hours to get to and from work, they will go and buy things like 22 bucks avocados, smashed, uh, smashed toasted sandwiches. They will go on overseas holidays and stuff like that because they have simply given up on that actual dream of owning a house, and that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah you've basically just cut yeah, several losses. I might as well enjoy the avocado while I've got it. Exactly right. Yeah. Look, look, and all this discussion about housing affordability is not going to go away anytime soon, but the thing that needs to be discussed now is that if we're going to have a, a large proportion of people who are renting, the rental rules need to be looked at and addressed to go and give the tenants some right. Because if there's going to be a generation coming through now who will struggle to buy a house, they're going to struggle to have kids, they need to have certainty if they're going to rent, that they can be in a location for uh, no, at least a considerable period of time so they can know about their schools, their jobs, all that so, kind of stuff. That's, right. that's the discussion. I now think. The, the balance is too far in, in favour of landlords. Yeah, global, exactly right. Globally speaking, we're behind the, behind the scale on, on uh, rental rights. I don't know. It's been a while since I've gone and rented, but you know, four, I think it's four or six weeks in New South Wales and you, boom, you're gone. So yeah. what kind of certainty does that give a young family with kids? They've got uh, children in school. It's a nightmare. That's a good point. Now, this will be the last thing from me and I can, I can see the look of approval from Paul on this, and this will be the last thing from me on this one. A lot of people say that, that re, uh, removing uh, negative gearing will fix the housing problem, uh, fix the housing affordability problem. I think that I can combine... Uh, you don't need to do that. High-speed rail will fix our housing affordability problem because a lateral idea. You, you can buy in barrel, as one of our, one of our associates has just done, very cheaply, uh, there and he, he's bought that. He's done that. He's going to build a beautiful place down there. All he needs is the high-speed rail to go in, and everything's all solved for it. Yeah. it the only the only problem that he's got is the commute. The, the, our problem is solved with with just faster trains. I'm happy to commute. I mean, look at what happens in the rest of the world. You've got a high-speed rail that takes you. An hour commute is not a big deal. It's not a big deal, and you can be as far away as you want as long as it's an hour on a high-speed rail. You're in at Wynyard. You're in at Town Hall here in Sydney, uh, or Southern Cross in Melbourne, and your problem is solved. Infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. Maybe, maybe, maybe Bertie can go and uh, spend his what his sixteen billion dollars he's received for the uh, for Osgrid sale, and maybe that's going to be the next thing—the high, high speed rail to barrel to go and service uh, your mate's property. That sounds like a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It actually sounds like a very attractive proposition because barrel is beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah. It is beautiful. Uh, I suppose with the it would be less beautiful with the incredible influx of people that are now going to buy there. I'm sure. I'm sure. The, I'm sure the residents would like the uh, the property appreciation. I'm not sure they'd like the uh, the change to the quaint yeah, setting well, which barrel can't. is. You can have your avocado and eat it too. <laughs> You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. James, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I've uh, been here with David Scott, Global Markets and Economics Reporter. I'll see you next week. I have been Paul Colgan, and um, we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going on leave, um, and we'll be back uh, in November with Devils and Details. We've got some great guests uh, lined up uh, for the run-up into Christmas, uh, so we're really looking forward to that. Um, Also, we've got a U.S. presidential election 
um, which um, you know um, there will be plenty to talk about. I'm sure after that. Um, this show has been produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on iTunes, where you can rate us and leave a review. Um, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.